Coming up this evening live from New York City. Railroad workers warning a massive strike could be coming if they don't get what they want in a new contract. What could it do to supply chains in the U.S.? And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says gas prices could rise again later this year. But they're working on a plan to address that risk. The EU's very own regulations are contributing to its sky-high electricity prices. We get a closer look at one specific climate policy. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here for NTD Business. There could be a widespread rail strike happening this Friday, and it could bring 40% of freight in the U.S. to a grinding halt. Unions are negotiating contracts with major U.S. railway operators. The union workers want salary increases and back pay for hours worked since 2020. A prolonged strike could lead to empty shelves in stores, temporary closures at factories and higher prices of consumer goods. Railroad workers are under a different labor law than the one that controls labor relations at most businesses. That means it's possible Congress could act to prevent or quickly stop a strike. And here to talk about the potential strike is Mark Mix. He's the president of the National Right to Work Foundation. Here he is. Mark, thanks for your time this afternoon. So rail workers are threatening of a strike. Very simple question. Let me ask you, what has led to this point? Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. This is a big story. And if at 12.01 a.m. comes around on Friday, September 16th, and and the railroad railroad shut down in this country, it's going to be a real problem. Some estimate it'll cost about $2 billion a day to the economy, let alone the damage to some perishable agricultural goods that are kind of at the heightened season, like the grain harvest out in the Midwest. But yeah, here's what's happening. This started, uh, this is a contract negotiation that's been going on since late 2019, early, early 2020, and basically covered 12 unions covering roughly 140,000 railway employers or employees, excuse me, across the country, and primarily with seven class one railroads that operate across the entire nation. And so this has been going on for years, um, and obviously we've come to a point where it's come to a head. We've had a presidential emergency board commissioned by President Joe Biden appointing three arbiters to basically come in and make a recommendation that's not binding to the railroad and to the unions, but it's something that is out there on the table. That happened back in July. In August, the Presidential uh, Emergency Board came through with recommendations that basically set the stage for what is a 24 percent increase in wages across the board to all the employees covered by this union agreement. Um, Right now, eight of the 12 unions have come to basically tentative agreements. They haven't been voted on by the employees yet but have come to tentative agreements with the uh, with the, the carriers. Um, but there are four major unions still left out there, two really big unions left out there that have yet to agree. And so if we get to Friday morning at 12.01 a.m. and these two largest unions call on their workers to go on strike, we anticipate that the rest of the union movement will honor that picket line and the railroads will probably shut down come Friday morning. Yeah, like you said, it's a big story, but... Do you think that will happen? Do you think an agreement will be made before then? 
Well, uh, back in the early 1990s, there was a couple of days where the railroad shut down. But here's what can happen. Basically, if this, if they think that a strike is going to come, Congress can step in and they can prohibit a strike or a lockout through congressional action. The unions are actually arguing that they don't want Congress involved. They want to keep the pressure on the railroads to come to the table and finish the negotiations by Friday morning or by late Thursday night, obviously. Um, I think there's a possibility that there'll be a strike. I think there's a possibility it'll be a couple of days. But obviously, with the damage, the potential damage done to the economy, I think that politicians, the unions, and the railroad carriers are going to have to come to the table very quickly and get to an agreement. Any kind of extended strike, like maybe we might see on the docks and the ports across the country, particularly on the West Coast right now, where there's contract negotiations going on there in 29 ports on the West Coast of America, and there's been no settlement for a contract that expired on June 30th. Lord knows, if we have a strike on the ports and a strike in, on the railroads across the country, it's a real problem. So I think the politicians probably, with November elections coming up, will probably have to step in re relatively quickly and get this all settled out. Okay. Now, now, another thing, you talked about this a little bit, but if a strike does happen, what kind of scale are we looking at and how long do you think it could last? Well. I think the a strike for the rail on the railways of across America would be devastating and shut down the entire system. Basically, there are 30 railroads that are involved in this negotiation. The seven class one railroads are the primary movers of products and goods across the country in our rail system. You know, hopefully there won't be a strike. Hopefully there'll be an agreement. I mean, we know that the eight the eight unions that have already put proposed tentative agreements to their memberships are going to get a 24% increase compounded that'll be in effect from 2020 to 2024. It will include an annual $1,000 immediate bonus. It basically translates into about $11,100 check for railroad workers right now if they accept this agreement. Um, obviously, the two big unions that are still out there, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineer and Trainmen's and then the Sheet Metal Workers, the Air and Rail Transportation, Transportation division are the two big unions. Those are the engineers on the trains um, that are moving the product. So I think they're going to have to settle, but we'll see. Um, hopefully the strike will be, hopefully there won't be one, and if there is, it will be very short. There's one last thing for our viewers watching. Should they be worried? Well, um, yeah, if the railroad system shuts down, there's a problem with supply chain. And, you know, we've already had lots of problems with supply chains going back to COVID. And it's working its way through the system now. It hasn't completely worked its way through the system. So to add railroads onto this, I think people ought to be concerned. And they ought to let their politicians know that this is an important issue if it does come down to congressional action. All right. Thank you very much, Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Foundation. Appreciate you talking with me today. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And it's not just railway workers. Thousands of nurses in Minnesota launched a three-day strike Monday over pay and staffing issues. The strike includes 15,000 nurses at seven healthcare systems in the Minneapolis and Duluth areas. Those groups have recruited temporary nurses and expect to maintain most services. Nurses are seeking more than 30% increases in compensation by the end of a three-year contract. Hospitals argue that the proposal is too costly and have offered 10 to 12 percent raises. The Minnesota Nurses Association said that the continued loss of nurses will leave hospitals vulnerable. Union officials said 15 hospitals would be affected by the strike. Minnesota nurses went on a one-day strike in 2010. Hospitals hired 2,800 replacement nurses and called in extra non-union staff. Banks and credit card companies are categorizing gun purchases might soon be done widely. 
This after the creation of a new category code that allows credit card companies to specify those purchases. Here's the story. The International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, approved the creation of a new merchant category code for gun retailers. The code will identify credit card sales of guns and ammunition. The ISO is an independent, non-governmental body based in Geneva, Switzerland. It creates standards across various industries, including the financial services industry. New York-based Amalgamated Bank made their request for the new code to the ISO. The bank first applied to create the gun merchant code in 2021. The application had been denied twice by the ISO. Amalgamated Bank calls itself America's socially responsible bank and was founded by union workers nearly 100 years ago. Its president said in a statement that the code will help stop shootings from happening. The new code will allow us to fully comply with our duty to report suspicious activity and illegal gun sales to authorities without blocking or impeding legal gun sales. New York lawmakers such as Governor Kathy Hochul, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, Attorney General Letitia James, and more have said that they support the new code. Groups called Guns Down America, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, and others issued a joint statement saying some of the nation's worst mass shootings, including Aurora, Colorado, San Bernardino, Orlando, and Las Vegas, involved electronic payments. Others are criticizing it. The National Shooting Sports Foundation said those who believe it will help law enforcement do not provide details on what should be considered suspicious purchases. The NRA said implying that firearm purchases are suspicious demonstrates an obvious bias these attorneys general hold against anyone who chooses to exercise a fundamental constitutional right. Major credit card companies such as Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and others have already committed to adopting the new code. And Wall Street rallied today. The Dow added 230 points or 7 tenths of a percent. S&P rose 43 points or 1 and 1 tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained 154 points or 1 and 3 tenths of a percent. Did you know that one in four Americans don't have anything saved for retirement? It's according to the Federal Reserve's most recent economic well-being report. But this doesn't have to be the case for your child. NTD's Jessica Beatty looks at how you can help your child jumpstart their retirement as soon as now. One of the best things you can do for your child's retirement is get them in the habit of saving at a young age. That's according to retirement expert Christian Mills at Reverse Mortgage Funding. But at the very basic is the idea of when I get money, I don't, I don't spend all of it. I start to save some of it and set that aside, you know, before the child even hits 10 years of age. For younger children, Mills says you can start with the idea of saving into different categories. It could be as simple as three different glass jars. One for saving part of their allowance, two for spending part of it, and three for setting aside some of it to help people who are less fortunate. Next, Mills says you can start a custodial Roth IRA account for your child. And any money that that child earns, even if it's not W-2 wages, up to $6,000 per year can be deferred into a Roth IRA, which grows, you know, the investments are gonna grow and that's gonna be tax-free money that you would take out, uh, you know, years down the road. The sooner your child starts saving, the better, because of compound interest. It's a concept of earning interest on interest, like a snowball effect. For example, if you set aside a one-time amount of $15,000 when your child is born, assuming a 6.5% annual interest rate compounded monthly, 
By the time your child is 65, that 15000 will have grown to over a million dollars. But if you wait until they're 18, by the time your child retires, that 15000 would be worth about $315,000. Still not bad, but it shows how much more the same amount could accumulate over a longer period. In summary, Start early, um, automate your savings, and you know, and make it part of your, just make it part of your daily fabric. And don't be afraid to talk to kids about money, because financial education definitely starts at home. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And Starbucks wants to become the first corporation to put a serious effort into the NFT world. In this case, you can think of NFTs or non-fungible tokens as digital collectible stamps. NTD's Sean Marshall has more on what Starbucks is offering its community. Starbucks Monday unveiled Starbucks Odyssey to find a way to use Web3 technology and NFTs to enhance its business and expand its existing loyalty program. You may be wondering, what is Starbucks Odyssey? Starbucks Odyssey will be an extension of the Starbucks Rewards program. It will offer members the ability to earn and buy digital collectible stamps, NFTs, that will unlock access to new immersive coffee experiences. There will be Starbucks Odyssey Journey, a series of activities such as playing interactive games or taking on fun challenges to deepen their knowledge of coffee and Starbucks. Starbucks members will be rewarded for completing journeys with a digital collectible journey stamp or NFT. Customers can sign up for the waitlist at waitlist.starbucks.com. Invitations will be sent to select waitlist members later this year who will be among the first to explore the experience. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there's a risk gas prices could rise again later this year after a recent decline. Sunday, Yellen said the European, U- European Union will stop for the most part buying Russian oil this winter. And while this could cause a potential spike in oil prices, the U.S. and its allies are working on a price cap to address that risk. Gas prices have been coming down now um, for almost uh, the last three months. Uh, Last month in July, uh, headline inflation was actually slightly negative, and um, we are are addressing inflation. Yellen said despite higher energy and food prices, she's optimistic about the U.S. economy, and she said we're not in a recession. Winter is coming, and the European Union is heading into it with sky-high energy costs. Politicians are blaming Vladimir Putin, who shut down the critical Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Yes, that is contributing to high costs. But European regulations themselves are also contributing to high costs. In particular, the European Union's emission trading system is raising prices on consumers. The EU's emission trading system mandates that all companies that emit greenhouse gases do so under a certain amount. If they don't, they need to purchase permits or certificates. In a nutshell, this is a form of punishment for emitting greenhouse gases. The certificate's cost has increased substantially over the years. This is partially because countries are forced to use coal, which emits more greenhouse gases than natural gas does. Back in 2019, the certificates cost 25 euros each. Now they cost more than triple the price at 80 euros or around $80. We spoke to Daniel Lacaye, the chief economist of the Tresses Hedge Fund. He's also the author of the book titled The Energy World is Flat, 
Lakaye says the cost of these permits gets passed on to consumers. It basically increases the price of power. Everybody is paying more because CO2 is part of the pricing of generation. The second thing is that it has generated enormous disparities because, for example, even coal generators have benefited because the price of CO2 raises energy prices. Lakaye says to make matters worse, governments decided that the CO2 permits were too cheap. Politicians and green activists wanted to make it more expensive to emit greenhouse gases, so they reduced the number of certificates available to buy. And lower supply meant higher prices, so in a way, higher energy costs in the EU is not entirely Putin's fault. The goal of this system is to create a financial incentive for the biggest emitters to cut back and encourage them to invest in renewables. But European leaders probably weren't anticipating an energy crisis when they were creating the certificate system. As for the goal of increasing investments in renewables, here's Lakaye again. Regulatory risk has made it more difficult for renewable investment in many countries in Europe. Second, because the increase in power prices has meant that European power prices were rising even when natural gas and coal prices were coming down. And also because uh, this huge tax that governments are getting, what ends up doing is that it doesn't have a final effect. It does not reduce the other costs of a bill for households or for businesses. Gas is a vital source of energy for the EU. It makes up around 21% of its energy consumption, and prices are up considerably over the last year. Now let's talk a little bit about how this is affecting the European economy. For Insight, we spoke with Juscelino Colaris. He's a professor at Case Western University and the author of the textbook, Restructuring Trade Agreements. Companies are uh, either turning off uh, production or uh, significantly slowing down production. And of course, that creates massive problems for uh, supply chains. Goods like cement production, glass, and steel. I mean, these three products alone that go into so many other products, they are very, very, very high energy intensive products. And uh, just, just take the example of glass. Glass production has been significantly curtailed in, in the EU. So let's talk about glass. Glass is used in so many things, from furniture and cars to medical technology and renewable energy. With this key building block of the economy damaged, the entire economy is affected. So as you can see, nothing could be made without energy. Energy is one of the primary drivers of economic development. It's crucial for any economy to make sure the power is on. Here's Professor Colaris again on European governments trying to do that. And government subsidizing energy, which is going to create a huge budgetary pressure on all these countries, which may tip Europe towards a new uh, uh, eurozone. And as for the emissions trading system, or ETS, there have been no signs that it's going away, except in Poland. The Polish prime minister says he supports suspending the ETS during the energy crisis. Then when energy is secured for all of Europe, the system can be reinstated. But president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, disagrees. She says the system is still needed to cut carbon emissions, even right now. 
Still to come, mementos from Elon Musk's college days are up for auction, including a birthday card with a love note. And artists from Ukraine and the U.S. transformed cars wrecked in the war into murals. They say it'll help with rebuilding efforts. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Maybe you should hold on to your ex's stuff. It could be lucrative later on, at least if your ex turns out to be the wealthiest man in the world. Former girlfriend of Elon Musk is auctioning off memorabilia and photos. Jennifer Gwynn started dating Musk back in 1994. Some of the items being sold are 18 photos of Musk when he was at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a necklace given to Gwynn on her birthday and a signed birthday card, which says, Happy birthday, Jennifer, a.k.a. Boo Boo. Love, Elon. According to the auction company, as of Sunday morning, it was up to $7,000. It's expected to go for more than $10,000. Tesla superfans can place a bid on a piece of muscorbelia until Wednesday. And artists from Ukraine and the U.S. are transforming a heap of burnt-out cars destroyed in the war into murals. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Some critics say it's wrong to create beauty out of the wreckage of war, but the artists insist their work will help Ukrainian artists and the overall rebuilding efforts. Muralist Trek Kelly from Los Angeles said the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So the project is about raising money for Ukrainian artists and uh, collaborating with them uh, and cooperating with cities who will designate for us uh, the appropriate walls that they wish to be beautified. Kelly also said authorities have assured the artists that no human lives were lost in those cars. Most of the vehicles were moved from a nearby bridge destroyed by Ukrainian forces to halt the advance of Russian tanks shortly after the February 24th invasion. Ukrainian artists Olena Yanko and Kelly say they honor critics' concerns, but they hope the site will be a place for reflection. There's thankfulness in the people who come here, people who have lost their loved ones. We cry together, we hug each other, and they thank us. This is unbelievable. It gives you wings, and you understand that you need to create this art, that the people need it. You give them hope, hope for our victory in the war. We're as strong as a sunflower, because the sunflower is the strongest flower. The collective will sell their work as digital assets to raise money for local causes. Kelly added the artists would move on to even bigger murals in nearby areas. Those projects would be sold as NFTs. I understand the idea of um, the flowers showing hope for the future and that uh, Ukraine, Ukraine cannot be destroyed despite what the Russians tried to do here. But um, I don't know, maybe it's too soon. Kelly also said U.S. company Liquitex and some local distributors were donating paints and other supplies, while cities were offering specific walls and areas for the murals. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter too. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching and we'll see you tomorrow.